All of Christian behavior should come as a result of seeking to please God. In seeking to please God, we have to understand that pleasing God means the Christian determines to keep, he determines to obey the commandments of God. Last week, Paul gave us the principle in verses 1 and 2 of what it was to please God. And this week, we see Paul in verses 3 through 8 making it clear as to what it means to work out this principle in the routine of our Christian lives. In particular, as it relates to the area of sexual conduct. When discussing the subject of sexual conduct, a question should be asked. And that question is, does the Bible, does the Word of God have a perspective on this issue? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks to this issue of sexual conduct with the idea that our sexual conduct is to be thought of in terms of sexual purity. Paul is writing to a church at Thessalonica, and if you'll remember, I told you Paul is in the city of Corinth, an evil, wicked city, not much different than a lot of our cities today. It was a city that was dominated by sexual immorality. The place that Paul is writing to, Thessalonica as well, was known for its rampant sexual immorality. Paul is at the core, if you will, of widespread immorality that persisted in the culture around him. And what we might not be aware of is that in this culture, sexual immorality, in particular the term fornication, was common. It was a lifestyle. It was a way of living. It wasn't even illegal. There was no laws prohibiting it. And Paul knew that it was in this world that these Christians were living. Paul is writing to a church that's living in a morally confused day. And might I say that we live in a morally confused world as well ourselves. Adultery is regarded as normal. You confront someone on that subject and they'll tell you you're old-fashioned. You need to get with it. And we're even moving rapidly toward the idea of same-sex marriage as being normal. In the last week, another state in our country voted Minnesota to make same-sex marriage legal in their state. Paul writes concerning this immorality here, and can I tell you, Paul does not waffle any at all. The Holy Spirit does not waffle when speaking through Paul. When it comes to the issue, we should have the same approach. We need to give people a clear, straightforward answer when it comes to this subject. And can I tell you, they're not going to like it, but they need it. And the Bible is clear on this subject. The problem we face today with the issue of sexual morality is because we've, we've waffled. We don't like to talk about it. We think that's taboo to mention that word. And I was raised, you don't say the S word in church. And I'm not talking about sin. You just don't say that word. And again, church and parents, our children need to hear this from us as parents and pastors. Because if they don't hear it from us, where are they going to go find it? Can I tell you, you don't want your child going to the elementary school and the high school and the college to find out what the Bible has to say about sexual conduct for a Christian. So with that in mind, the main idea we're going to see today is pleasing God in our sexual conduct. Pleasing God in our sexual conduct. Look at verse 3. And I'll outline it for you as we go. We see God's will for sexual conduct. Verse 3. God's will for sexual conduct. He says, for this is the will of God. What is the will of God for you? Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. What is God's will for your life? How many of you ever asked that question? 
What's God's will for my life? The will of God for your life is what? Your sanctification. That you grow in holiness. Every Christian, no matter where you are, no matter whether you're male, female, young or old, it's God's will for you to grow in holiness. God's will for you is to be holy, pure, clean. Paul uses this word sanctification. I think we're familiar with that word. It's the process of becoming holy. It's a process of being separated from sin and becoming more like Jesus. Getting rid of sin in our life and becoming more like Christ. Now, sanctification is a process of being separated from sin and set apart to holiness. And that comes as a direct result of salvation. Only those who repent of sin and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin can be sanctified. At the moment people repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ, they are set apart, they are sanctified and declared holy at that point in time by God. But there's a process in our lifetime called sanctification where as we live in this world as believers, we push more toward holiness. And God in His grace through His Spirit works in us to become more holy in every aspect of our lives, regardless of what it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says these words in relation to our subject today. He says, and such were some of you. Do you hear what he said? Were some of you, you were such as this. He's talking about sexual immorality in that particular passage there. He said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God's will for the Christian is that they move from sexual immorality to sexual purity. And they can do this because they have been washed, because they have been set apart, and because they have been justified through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who repent, put their faith in Christ, are established as holy, but it's a lifetime, continuous lifetime of pursuing holiness. God's Word tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 15 and 16. But he, excuse me, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. How much of our conduct? All of it. In case you're wondering, all doesn't mean we can leave something out. Everything in our lives as believers is encompassed under the idea of being holy. Why is that statement made? Here's why that statement's made. God says, you shall be holy. Why? Because... I am holy. Paul is saying God's will is that you be sanctified, that you be separated from sin and set apart to holiness. Last week we learned about the Christian life being lived in order to please God. To please God is to do what? To do His will. God's will for His people here is what? Sanctification. God's will is that His people be holy. God's people please God by being what? Holy. God's people please God by being holy in all their conduct. Nothing is exempt from the pursuit of holiness. Here's what I want you to do with me. This is rather interesting. This is not original to me. I've heard people do this in preaching through the Scripture. Pretend that this passage is a conversation between Paul and these Thessalonian Christians, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 3. Paul says that it's God's will that you be sanctified. To which the Thessalonians might reply, What do you mean, Paul? To which Paul replies, Abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain means to hold oneself off. It means complete abstinence. To stay away from any thought, 
behavior that violates God's Word as it relates to sexual conduct. Sexual immorality. He said abstain from it. It's a term used to describe any form of prohibited sexual behavior. Any form of prohibited sexual behavior. The phrase sexual immorality. Let's, let's talk. He said abstain from it, right? Get away from it. Stay away from it. Hold oneself off from it. That word there is the word pornea. And if you heard that, you know where we get our English word from that, right? It's called what? Pornography. That phrase, sexual immorality, means mainly fornication. That is, and listen parents, I worked really hard this week to choose words carefully. So we wouldn't have to have any gray area, and so I could be as discreet as possible. Sexual immorality is two people acting as if they are married when they're not married. By acting, I mean being together in a way that God designed only for a man and a woman who are married. God said this close physical relationship is for married people only. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Man, woman, together, one flesh. So sexual immorality includes sexual relationships before marriage and wrong sexual relationships among married people. That's the meaning of the seventh commandment, is it not? Thou shalt not what? Commit adultery. Is there any gray area there? If it's conducive to your lifestyle, don't commit adultery. Don't do it. Any sexual activity that deviates from the relationship between a husband and a wife is immoral by God's standards. We must also understand that sexual immorality extends beyond just the physical acts of immorality. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, don't turn there, but listen. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Praise God. I have died to my sin and my life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's one word there among many which are important that sticks out to me. It's the word impurity. It refers to unclean thoughts. Your sexual sin includes your thoughts, not just your actions. How do we know that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. What is Jesus saying there? My Father's word, my word says don't commit adultery. But what did Jesus follow up by that by saying? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman or a man, I know that's not in there, but that's the idea. Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart which is the thoughts. Jesus said the act is sinful, but what else is sinful? What goes on between the ears is sinful as well. Pursue holiness in our thought life. We sometimes dismiss that from the physical aspect. But Jesus said, oh no, it's what goes on between the ears that we are to abstain from as well. We're to pursue holiness in our actions, but even more importantly in our thoughts, because thoughts lead to what? Actions. To abstain in verse 3 means abstinence from all forms of sexual immorality, thoughts and actions. In verse 3 we see God's will for sexual conduct. 
It's God's will for your life, Christian, that you abstain, that you avoid, that you separate yourself from sexual immorality in your thoughts and in your actions. Look at verse 4. Now in verse 4 through the first part of verse 6, if you're outlining, we see how a Christian can be sexually moral. Continuing the idea of this being a conversation. I think this is, this is pretty neat. I heard someone do this and I thought this is great. Continuing this idea of a conversation, Paul says it's God's will that you be sanctified. To which the Thessalonians reply, what do you mean Paul? To which Paul replies, abstain from sexual immorality. To which the Thessalonians may reply, how are we supposed to do that? To which Paul says, control your body with the standards that are given to you by God. Look at verse 4 and 5. That each of you know how to control his body, excuse me, his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice how verses 4 and 5 say to do something one way and not do it another way. Do you see that? Control your body. And how are you to control your body? In holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. Do you see the distinction there? In holiness and honor, control your bodies in holiness and honor, not what? In lust. Control your body. Sexual, listen, I know for some of you this is going to, this is where it's going to, I'm beginning to sweat right here, okay? Sexual desire is not a bad thing. Listen to me carefully. It was designed by God. But sexual desire was made to be ruled or controlled by honor toward another person and holiness toward God. God gave us that desire. He said, but you control that desire with honor toward other people and holiness toward me. Lust is what sexual desire becomes when honor toward another person and holiness toward God are missing. God gave us that desire and we corrupt that desire when we don't honor other people and we don't live a life of holiness toward God and we corrupt that desire and God says that becomes lust. Lust is a sexual desire that disgraces another person and it ignores God. If sexual desire is not guided by respect for the honor of others and regard for the holiness of God, it is lust. It is sinful. And the Christian, when lusting, is not living to please God. Remember what Paul said? Live, walk in a way that pleases God. No, by the way, here's an area in which you need to do that. Look at verse 5 again. Paul tells us that the believer should not act like an unbeliever. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who what? Do not know God. Paul says there's a boundary between the church and the world. There's a boundary between the church and the world so that the world can look at us and they can say, you know those people are different. As a matter of fact, some of them are quite strange. They act differently with regard to their sexual behavior. The world should be able to look at us and see that we act differently than they do when it comes to this area. The word Gentiles here is a word often used in Scripture to refer to unbelievers. And that's the case here because they what? They do not what? Know God. They do not know God and they have never repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Paul is saying believers should be able to control their bodies in contrast to unbelievers whose passions run wild. Christian, you should not be like the Gentiles, the sinners in this world when it comes to your sexual conduct. 
Why is Paul telling believers this? And you're probably sitting here this morning going, why in the world? Why didn't he just jump over this and go to the the next verses? Verse 9. Why didn't he just skip this? Why in the world is Paul telling us this? Why, Why is our pastor telling us this? Paul is telling this to believers because believers can develop immoral thoughts and thoughts can lead to the committing of immoral acts. So they need this teaching. Can I tell you something, congregation? I need this teaching. And I know you're going, but you're our pastor. I'm a sinner just like everybody else. I need this. You need this teaching. They need this teaching. Impure desires can lead believers to actions that are completely out of place with their position as the people of God. Look at verse 6. Let's continue this idea of a conversation once again. Paul said, control your body within the standards given by God, to which the Thessalonians may have responded. So this is a personal, private matter, right? To which Paul says, no, make sure that you don't wrong your brother in relation to your sexual conduct. Look what he says there. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Paul is concerned about sexual conduct because of the harmony that needs to be in place within the church, the congregation. He says we're not to transgress our brother. The word transgress means to sin against, to step over the line, to exceed what is lawful under God's standards. Paul says we're not to wrong our brother as well. The word wrong has the idea of being selfish. To greedily take something for personal gain, to take pleasure at someone else's expense. That's what that word means in this context. Whenever believers seek to satisfy their physical desires at the expense of another brother, they cause another believer to stumble, to fall into sin. Believers, listen, we should never use other people. We should never use other people, especially fellow believers, to achieve sinful gratification in our lives. Sexual sin can destroy the unity of a congregation. Christians are people that should be deeply moved by love for other people. Christians love people. They don't use people. We love people. We do not use people. Look with me to verses 6-8. through The latter, the second part of verse 6 through verse 8. Here we see why Christians should be sexually moral. And if you read carefully, this should grab your attention. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit... Notice in verse 6, the first reason that Christians should be sexually immoral is because of what? The Lord is the avenger in all these things. Again, think a conversation is taking place here, okay? Paul has said, control your body within the standards given by God, to which the Thessalonians may have responded. So that's a personal private matter, right, Paul? To which Paul says, no, make sure that you don't wrong your brother... In relation to your sexual conduct, to which the Thessalonians replied, We're sure that the Lord is so loving, surely He won't mind. To which Paul responds, Listen, the Lord will punish this kind of sin. Don't have the attitude that God is some old gray-haired guy sitting up in heaven that's going to wink at your sin and turn his head from that. Paul says, That's not the case. If you turn from the Lord 
Christian as your treasure and you make a master out of sexual impurity, sooner or later, you're going to meet the judgment of God. That's what Paul says here. And according to verse 6, God's vengeance is, is coming upon those who disregard the warning of being sexually pure. You might be saying, come on, pastor. Is God really upset when I choose to live life this way? Is He really upset? And my response is, absolutely. Why do I say this? Look at verse 7. We see the second reason why Christians should be sexually immoral. It's because of God's purpose. For God has not called us for impurity, but to what? Holiness. What is it God said in 1 Peter chapter 1? Be holy. Why? Because I am holy. For Christians to be sexually moral is in full agreement with God's eternal plan for your life. For the third time, if you've been paying attention, Paul has used the word sanctification or holiness. This is the third time. And here he says that when God calls the sinner to salvation, He calls them to what? Holiness. God's purpose in calling people to salvation was to produce a holy people who would walk worthy of the call into the kingdom of God. God did not call people into salvation so they could continue living their lives any way they wanted to. Look at verse 8. We see the third reason why Christians should be sexually moral. Therefore, who disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Can I tell you, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that I have lost my mind to even deal with this subject, much less to say what I'm saying, you're not disregarding me, you're disregarding who? God. Christians should be holy because God commands it, because His Holy Spirit lives where? Within us. Again, there may be some here today who would say, come on, Pastor, this sounds like some old-fashioned way of thinking. You've got to get with the times, Pastor. No, I don't. I only need to obey God. That should be our response in this world. I don't need to get with the times. All I only need to do is obey God. Notice that this message is not a message of a man, as I said. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but who? God. Reject this message, Christians, and you reject God. The person who actively engages in unholy behavior does what? He rejects God. The word disregard means to reject with finality. It's the picture of a person who claims to be a Christian but demonstrates a pattern of behavior which indicates that his profession is not real. That's what that's talking about. Paul makes it perfectly clear that unrepentant, sexually immoral people face the judgment of God. If God has called us to live in holiness, then to live in sexual immorality amounts to a rejection to that call to be holy. God, I don't care. You can't say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple, but I don't want to live the way I want to live. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? I want to be yours, but by the way, I want to live the way I want to live. That's what we're saying when we decide to live sexually immoral lives. I want you, Jesus, but I want this. And my friends, what we, we see that happening more and more in our culture today, do we not? People want to say, I want to live in a way that is completely opposed to God's Word, and at the same time, I want to call myself a Christian. And can I tell you, I, that troubles me. That people say, I'm a Christian, but I can live my life any way I please. I don't know about you, but that's not the Christian that I see 
presented here in the Scriptures. Now, let me say this. There's some good news, okay? This does not mean that God does not forgive sexual sin. Remember earlier when I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11? Paul has listed all these areas of sexual immorality. And then he says, such were some of you. Some of you used to be these, but now you have been what? Washed and cleaned and glorified. So Paul understands that it's possible for a person to repent of these sins and be brought into the family of God. And they're also gloriously, graciously accepted by God when they repent of their sin. Don't misunderstand me. God forgives this sin. It should be understood that this does not mean that true Christians will never struggle with these things. Okay? Some of you are sitting here today. And you know that this presents you a problem sometimes. This does not mean that true Christians will never struggle with this. How do we know that? How do we know that? Anybody remember a man named King David? What's the one famous statement we see in the Scriptures about David that we always remember when somebody says King David? David was what? A man after what? God's own heart. A man who wrote most of the Psalms was also an adulterer. You know what David did? In Psalm 51, we read about David doing what? Repenting of his sin and asking God to cleanse him because he had sinned against God. Christians, we struggle with this sexual immorality. We have thoughts. We're not immune to this. But there is forgiveness for us. Do you see that's part of living the holy life? Repenting of sin and asking God's forgiveness and, and pursuing obedience to what God calls us to do. So what do we do with this passage today? Here's some things I want to say as far as application goes. You may be saying with a prideful heart this morning, these verses have nothing to do with me. I don't even have to listen. I'm not like those who get caught in sexual sin. Can I tell you something? You need to beware. You're playing with fire. You are playing with fire. You're no match for your sinful flesh. Here's what you do. You call out to God and you say, God, I may not be there, but help me stay away from it. God, help me to stay away from that. And here's what I've done this week. And I think it would do well for all of us is to take these verses and get on our knees before God. As single men and women, as married men and women, as young men and young women, and call out to God and ask for His help, ask for His grace, ask for His Spirit to empower us to please Him in the area of our sexual conduct. I read through these verses this week and I prayed, God, help me. God, help me to do this. God, help me not to do this. And I know you're sitting there going, you're a pastor, you shouldn't be doing those things. I've told you. I don't struggle with sexual immorality, but I pray God keep me from it. Because I know what can happen if I don't. Some here in the past or maybe in the present have in the physical or in the mind done anything but to be honorable or holy in your sexual conduct. Today's the day when you call out to God for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. It's not the unpardonable sin. God will forgive that sin. 
Quickly, let me give you some motivations why you need to fight this battle, okay? They're right here in the text. I mean, they're clear as day. What is my motivation to fight this battle? Verse 1, the motivation to please God. Sexual purity does what? It pleases God. Motivation number 2, verse 3, it's the will of God for you to be sexually pure. The motivation of honor. Controlling your body in purity is a matter of honor. Either being honored by the community or showing honor to your wife and other women or to your husband and other men. Verse 4 says that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness. Sexual purity is the honorable, holy thing to do. That's your motivation. Notice the other motivation there in verse 6, which is, the rest doesn't get your attention. This one should, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. When we sin sexually, we're not seeking the highest good of others. Christians love people. They don't what? Use people. And can I tell you something, man? Something somebody taught me a long time ago in this area of thought, looking at women. I had someone tell me, as Christians, when we look at other people, we need to tell ourselves that is an image bearer of God. We have no right to look at them in any other way than to think of them in an impure way because they're an image bearer of God. You think about that. The next time you look at someone, that's an image bearer. They may not be a believer, but they're still an image bearer of God. And you're dishonoring them by even having a thought toward them that you shouldn't have. And the last motive, verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger. Sooner or later, you'll meet the judgment of God for this sin if you don't repent of it. I'm not prophesying that God's going to bring wrath on you today, but if you continue in this sin, it says here that God is the avenger. He will bring judgment upon His people who walk in continual sin against Him. Let's pray this morning.